So welcome to Plodcast, episode 26. So we've been plotting for quite a while. Glad you're still with us, or I assume you're still with us. If you're listening to this, you are still with us. So I want to um, I want to begin by talking about worldview, a uh, a term that came into vogue in the 70s and 80s and is now uh, being disparaged by some, even though I think uh, we are more in need of worldview thinking than ever. Uh, what happened was it became popular, it became a thing, and of course a bunch of people latched onto it that didn't quite understand the thing and and so uh, started doing uh, making certain mistakes in the name of a Christian worldview that caused some intelligent observers to say, uh, you know, that can't be right, and and so on. Now, um, as we're talking about as we're talking about worldview, uh, we're and and worldviews, different ways of looking at the world. Uh, it's it is a problem of taxonomy. It's a problem of how do you how do you divide the library up? So, f- for example. Um, James Sire, in his uh, very fine book, The Universe Next Door, uh, breaks it down, uh, breaks, I think it's like six or seven worldviews. There's there's pantheism, there's, um, uh, you know, there's the uh, Christian theism, there is um, uh, materialistic atheism. So you've got these different constructs of the world. And, and basically, um, if you approach it the way he does, you you find out that we don't have 22,000 worldviews. You've got basically a handful of uh, worldview options, a handful of denominations among human thinkers. And so there you go. Do you, do you want to be a pantheist? Do you want to be a theist? Do you want to be an atheist? And, and so on. Uh, Peter Jones has um, broken everything down into two basic Worldviews, and uh, I'll illustrate uh, what I mean by taxonomy in a minute. But uh, Peter Jones has has um, broken them down into what he calls oneism and twoism. Uh, twoism is uh, that which acknowledges the creator-creature divide. So there is God, and then there is that which is not God. So you have two things, two fundamental uh, realities: the self-existent God and that which is created by that self-existent God. God and not God, um, and this is what he calls twoism. Oneism is basically the view that everything that is is what is. What is. Um, so uh, all, the, uh, all the different worldviews that James Sire delineates can be broken down into some form of oneism, according to, uh, according to Peter Jones. Now, when you're when you are when you're cataloging anything, you can stipulate your system and then go for it. So, I've sometimes toyed with the ideas uh, idea of what would happen if you cataloged a library by putting all the red books together and all the blue books together and all the eight-inch tall books together, uh, or and you you had some system of organization. Um, but the system of organization had nothing to do with who wrote the book or what the book was about. It was what color the book was or how tall the book was or, or whether it was uh, hardback or paperback uh, and so on. Well, that would be a, a system of organization, 
And if you were used to it, you could probably find um, you could find whatever book you were looking for. But you'd have to keep track of red, tall, blue, gray, whatever. But that's a that's a, a system of of cataloging. It's a system of categorizing. And if if you go into one library and it has the Dewey Decimal System, and you go into another library and it has uh, a different system, and you go into another one and it has this weird oddball the color of books system, um, you can't say that the system is right or wrong um, unless it's um, unless it's a system that is making a uh, historical truth claim. Like, for example, like Darwinian taxonomy does. Um, so uh, Darwinism is attempting to to um, draw the tree of life based on blood relationship, based on um, um, uh, proximity of, of the relationship. But if you're just, uh, if you've just got a bunch of colored marbles and you are uh, sorting them out, you can uh, sort them out by size or sort them out by color or sort them out by uh, whether there's a swirl in it or not. So um, when we're looking at uh, when we're looking at worldviews, I, I don't. Re- I think uh, James Sire's observations are very valuable, and I really have profited from um, Peter Jones's analysis of it. I think he's right too. Uh, the, but they they've got a system, and then they say, "Here's here's how we break it down." All of this is uh, running up to um, a system I would like to suggest, uh, and that is that there is basically one worldview only one and then that worldview can be broken down into people who acknowledge that they have it and people who deny that they have it um so there's a hat tip to peter jones oneism and twoism so you you uh, have to consider worldview as evaluated by the what the practitioner of the worldview says right so an atheist says he's an atheist a um a pantheist says he's a pantheist, and so you say, okay, let's take that, write it down, and then compare what is said to what this other guy says. Um, it's the same thing with Peter Jones' breakdown. Um, one person affirms the creator-creature uh, division, and another person denies it. But in both cases, you're going off of uh, what that what that person is saying. Um, I think that if we look carefully at Romans 1, and this is sort of... Uh, backing up to the the primal level or the foundational level uh backing up to that level where we are uh, we have to take into account what god says about what that person thinks and believes now in romans 1 we are told that what is true about god is evident to the unbelievers so the the unbelievers are not unbelievers at the basic level because they are not persuaded. They are unbelievers because at the basic level, they refuse to be persuaded. What, is, uh, what can be known about God is evident to them, uh, Paul says. God has revealed it to them. And the reason they don't bend the knee is because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as he puts it. So what is the, what is the difference in worldview uh, between the person who bends the knee and the person who doesn't bend the knee. Well, in terms of what they think, that there is a God and he did make me and I see his divine majesty and power, there's no difference in worldview. There is dif- there's a difference in ethical response, but there's not a difference in what is thought 
or comprehended or understood or uh, accepted at the fundamental level. At the, uh, at the next level up, at the level of choice, at the level of decision, the unbeliever uh, rebels against what he knows to be true. So if you define, if you define worldview as that which, um, that which everyone knows to be true, then in all of human history, there's only been one worldview. Uh, if, if there were really more than one worldview, then the last judgment becomes impossible because the Bible teaches that at the last judgment, every mouth will be stopped. Everyone will confess that God knows what he's doing. Everyone will acknowledge that God's judgments are just. But God's judgments would not be just if the pantheist or the polytheist or um, the atheist honestly thought, honestly believed all the way down to the substrata what he was saying. The Bible teaches that he doesn't honestly believe what he's saying. He, he is at some, somewhere in there, he's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And that's, that is why uh, God's judgment is fierce. That's why God's wrath rests upon these people is because they are rebelling against light it's those who are in the dark the bible teaches that those who are living in darkness are living in darkness because they don't want to be in the light they rebel against the light at any sign of light they run the other way and the only way that you can prevail upon them to come into the light is if uh, god intervenes and and uh, does a miraculous work of regeneration uh, in their heart. So I would, I would argue, ultimately, there's only one worldview, uh, and that is the worldview that acknowledges the true and living God, the triune God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, which everyone knows, and some people acknowledge, and other people refuse to acknowledge. Now, when you get to, to the refusal to acknowledge, that's where you break it out into uh, the different uh, kinds of uh, categories based on what they say. So one person refuses to acknowledge the truth by means of polytheism. Another person refuses to acknowledge the truth by means of atheism and so on. So we can pay attention to what they're saying, but we don't believe at, at the end of everything. We don't believe that they have the authority to create a worldview any more than they have the authority to create a world. Um, and so... Uh, what what we do is we say what matters is what god says how many worldviews does god count how many how many basic fundamental perspectives of the way things are uh, does god see and in every human heart he sees only one uh, an awareness of who he is and either a refusal to accept him or a an acceptance of him given by grace So continuing on with podcast episode 26, we've come to my little book review section, uh, which I'm enjoying very much. Uh, the book I want to talk to you about today is uh, one I just finished a few days ago, uh, and it's called C.S. Lewis, Anti-Darwinist. C.S. Lewis, Anti-Darwinist. It's by uh, Jerry Bergman, and uh, and it's published by Wiffenstock. I, I believe it's Wiffenstock. So C.S. Lewis, Anti-Darwinist. And this is... Uh, 
the the title of this book caught my caught my eye uh, because uh, as someone who has been blessed greatly by the writings of Lewis over the years, I began I I, I grew up having his Narnia stories uh, read to me. I began reading his theology, his uh, theological and theological and apologetic works when I was in high school. I I've profited greatly and uh, read a bunch of his books and then uh, in recent years I've been going back through them and and listening to them in in my truck and uh, just and having wonderful experience oh that's where I learned that you know that's that sort of thing I've learned an awful lot from Lewis but for someone who is a conservative evangelical American Presbyterian fundamentalist take you know combine that combine all those however you want as someone who uh, is absolutely convinced of the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture, one of the things that um, people like me trip over is Lewis's apparent uh, acceptance of theistic evolution. And so a title, uh, and this comes out probably most um, obviously in his book, The Problem of Pain. Now, uh, he and, and in that in that book, he has a a, a, a long section which appear, appears to have, for all intents and purposes, a full acceptance of, of theistic evolution. Now, what Jerry Bergman has done in this book is um, bring to the—he's uh, gathered together a bunch of quotes from uh, Lewis's articles and, um, and books and letters that indicate that it's not nearly as simple as that. Now, uh, I would argue, it, and and Bergman uh, says that basically you have uh, different options. Lewis was a theistic evolutionist. Um, Lewis was um, uh, a theistic evolutionist sort of at the beginning of his Christian life, but be, became increasingly suspicious of Darwinism as uh, time went on. Uh, and then you have... Um, uh, Lewis as sort of uh, a, an anti-evolutionist um, uh, from day one. And Bergman argues for some somewhere between two and three. Um, I, would, I would argue, and, and I'm very greatly uh, indebted to Bergman for gathering a bunch of these uh, quotes together, a number of which I have gone over and noticed and noted. Um, and, uh, but it's really a, a striking... Um, stance that Lewis takes. I would argue that that Lewis was a Darwinian heretic from the beginning. So he he accept he he always goes out of his way. When this comes up, he comes out uh, goes out of his way to say, uh, "I am not arguing with um, uh, evolution as a theorem in biology. I'm I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this cosmic." Uh, the cosmic idea of emergent evolution, the idea of uh, inexorable progress upward. Um, now, Lewis was uh, always open to what he called evolution as a uh, as a theorem in biology. But then the question that Bergman raises is: is this? Is he is when he says that? When he acknowledges that? Is he talking about what cre- ardent creationists would? grant as microevolution, variation within species. Um, 
if uh, so, basically every every creationist who believes that we're all de- strict creationist, who believes that we're all descended from Noah and his wife, um, well. If you look around and you see Asians and, and blacks and whites and different racial types among men, well, quite obviously, there's variation within species. Um, when you look at what dog breeders can do, there's variation within species. Is Lewis talking about that and then denying um, uh, either Darwinian or Bergsonian evolution or the thinking of Teilhard de Chardin? Um, is he, and he's sort of uh, attacking the the Darwinian cosmology um, as the idea of progress. Well, there's a there's a good deal to be uh, said for that. Uh, in Christian Reflections, there's a there's an essay called "Funeral of a Great Myth," and um, and the myth is evolution, and Lewis um, just denies it uh, root and branch. He just he goes after it, and so the question is whether. Where is the dividing line? What, how, um, how accommodating, and what was the point of accommodation? Where did that begin, and where did that, where did that end? I would say that he was saying things that, um, even when he's looking at looking his most accommodating of theistic evolution, he is saying things in in the context of those accommodating quotes, which I think any ardent Darwinist would regard as heresy in principle, and, uh, and he would be right. So um, one other thing that should be, uh, one other thing should be mentioned in this regard, and that, that is um, uh, Bergman brings out, as I've, I've read in one other, uh, one other book, a correspondence between, a, um, between Lewis and a friend of his named, with the last name of Ackworth. And uh, Ackworth was a strict creationist uh, uh, a member of an anti-evolutionist um, society there in England, and uh, and they they basically uh, had were on very good terms. Lewis uh, respected his arguments, and and near the end of his life, it was very plain that Ackworth's arguments rattled Lewis. Lewis uh, so much as uh, says so. Um, he's also being very careful because he, Lewis wasn't a trained scientist and he didn't want to get out over the edge of his skis uh, and get out to get too far in front. So he, he declined to write a, a foreword to one of Ackworth's books, but he was on very good terms with him and acknowledged the force of, um, of some of his arguments. So basically, if you get this book, C.S. Lewis, Anti-Darwinist, and read through it, just look at all the all the quotes, uh, you're going to see that the picture of Lewis as an accommodating theistic evolutionist is just way too simple. All right, so we are continuing our series on hamartiology. Remember that uh, hamartiology is the study of sin. We're looking at all, uh, all the various Greek words for various sins or moral, moral problems. All, all of us in this world are amateur hamartiologists, um, uh, sometimes on our own time in ways that we oughtn't. But if we want to study our adversary, we want to pay close attention to what the Bible says about what we ought not to be doing, uh, this is a pr- uh, this should be considered as a, as a fruitful um, enterprise. So, 
Pilate several times says that he had found no fault in Jesus. That's in Luke 23, verse 4, and Luke 23, verse 14. Uh, the word he uh, used there is ition, and contextually it refers to the charges that had been made against Jesus, which were charges of sedition and blasphemy. So I, I find no guilt, I find no fault in this man. In the same chapter, the same word is rendered as cause, but, it, but meaning the same thing. I found no cause of death in him. That's in verse 22. So uh, I found no fault worthy of death in him. I found no reason to put him to death. The only other time the word is used in the New Testament is in Acts 19.40, when the town clerk of Ephesus was worried about the fact that there was no cause for the day's uproar. Uh, the word is used in contexts that mean that there was no fault that was actionable. But of course, for slanderers, anything is actionable at any time. All they need to go on is a rumor. But the town clerk says there's no basis in this charge. There's no, there's no basis in this accusation of fault against Paul. So, ition means fault, um, fault or charge, and uh, in, and it's sort of, um, um, you might summarize it as a, um, a charge. Uh, in which guilt is present. So, um, fault, charge, guilty charge, um, and so that's that's ition. So Jesus was accused of sedition and blasphemy. Uh, Pilate said, "I'm not seeing it," but he was accused of it nonetheless. And um, and Paul was accused of um, you know blaspheming the 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 goddess of Ephesus. And the town clerk says, "No, no, that's not, that's not the case." God in the time of the sickness, God in the dark. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.